0: It's Tuesday, July 14th, Bastille Day, uh, which will come up later on in our discussion. And welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. Our format's a conversation, Hoover Senior Fellows debate what's going on and what may lie ahead in these complicated times. I'm John Cochran. I'm an economist and the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution. I also author the Grumpy Economist blog. I'm sitting in for our usual host, Bill Whalen, who's off this week. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by a special guest Goodfellow. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Victor is a prolific classicist and military historian. His latest book, The Case for Trump, was a bestseller in 2019, and it's now available in paperback. Victor writes a syndicated column, a column for National Review, he's the host of the classicist podcast for Hoover, and he appears frequently on Fox News. In his copious spare time, he runs an almond and raisin farm in Selma, California, which has been owned by his family for almost 100 years. A warm welcome to you, Victor.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now let's meet the regular Goodfellows. Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's the author of 15 books and counting, most recently The Square on the Tower. He writes a weekly column for Bloomberg News, and you should watch his TV series based on that book, Neil Ferguson's Networld, now running on PBS. Hi, good to see you again,
2: Neil. Good to see you, John. Good to see you too, Victor, and also HR.
0: Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster is the Hoover Institution's Fouad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Uh, prior to returning to Hoover, he served as the National Security Advisor to the President. Uh, General McMaster is also the author of Battlegrounds, a Fight to Defend the Free World. Coming out this fall, but you can pre-order it now. Hi, H.R.
3: Hi, John, Neil, Victor, good to be with you. you.
0: So, Victor, we, we gotta get the elephant out of the room first. <laughs> You wrote the case for Trump two years ago, and my times have changed in the last six months. Uh, The president isn't doing so well in the the polls. Uh, Democrats are urging Biden to go big, to grab the Senate and governorships as well. So certainly it's time for an update. Um, How do you see the case for Trump now?
1: I think it's pretty much, he's pretty much where he is. At least about a week ago, he was where he was in 2016. He was running about 12 points, 11, 12 to 10 points behind Hillary Clinton. He closed up a little bit in mid-July, and nobody thought he had a chance to win. So I think poll-wise, he's about where he was. Some of the state polls, he's a little bit better, but we've never had anything like 2020. I think most people would agree that, say, in January 15th, there was despair. The Democratic primaries had not gone well. Bernie and Bloomberg, the non-choice between Bernie and Bloomberg resurrected Joe Biden, who had been discarded in the first initial primaries. And then um, the COVID hit, and then the lockdown, and then the May 25th protest and cultural revolution that ensued. And I think all of that created a sense that the key swing voters were in a fetal position. They just sort of said, I want it all to go away. And maybe if Donald Trump just goes away, it'll all go away. And that seems to be governing the polls now. But I think they're so volatile in 30 days, we're seeing sort of, I think I wrote a column today called peak Jacobinism, that we're getting to the point where when you read this Harper's letter of 153 leftist luminaries or Barry Weiss being, re- resigning today from the New York Times, the Hollywood, uh, some of the actors have been vocal about, they don't like the new racial uh, demands put on them, and um, I think Roz Simone of CHOP is back to renting out his uh, his real estate empire, and the, you know, the low-hanging fruit of statues have been toppled, and you've either got to go big with a crane and get Mount Rushmore or Stone, Stone Mountain, or you got to go into the absurd of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, so.
0: If I may, what it sounds like you're saying is that the uh, the battle has not been joined, really. No. Uh, Joe Biden yeah. is uh, campaigning from his front basement. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we don't really know what agenda policies or, or message the president is gonna stress. So I'd like to ask you sort of two questions on that. Where do you think uh, the president will or should go in, in his uh, case to the voters for the election? And the issue you just mentioned. Um, in the last election, the polling showed after the fact that the great swath of deplorables uh, felt pretty bad about where they had been consigned by our country's elites. And I wonder how they are sitting out there in, in the heartland where you uh, live, uh, thinking about the, the quick changes in our, as you said, revolution, or at least attempted revolution.
1: Well, I think to answer your first question first, very quickly, I don't think it's going to work for him to uh, rattle off his signature achievements. I think H.R.s knows that from the foreign policy that, that uh, constructive realism uh, did work pretty well. We're in, we were in a better position vis-a-vis China and Iran and other uh, belligerents. And the natural gas and oil production, and low record unemployment for minorities, and the economy was doing well, as as you know, John. But that's all ancient history now, and it doesn't do any good to rail like Achilles. It's unfair that Agamemnon has all the the uh, status, and you did all the work, so he's got to quit that and he's got to focus he's only got a hundred and something days 10 days or something and he's got to give us an agenda that goes beyond MAGA 1.0 and i think some of them have to be some of those uh, recommendations or policies or agendas or trajectories have to be specific to the crisis we're in he's got us he's got to i think appoint a group of people or have a vision of about the virus because we're going to have another one of these and it's going to be have to be far-reaching That we not only have to outline how we're going to bring back key industries that are essential in a time of a quarantine and an epidemic, but we're going to have to have a standard of quarantine, you know, red, yellow, blue, green. So it's not just ad hoc. And we did that after 9-11, we're going to have to have some national board of disinterested scientific experts that tell us what defines a case versus somebody who has antibodies versus the case to fatality rate. Et cetera, et cetera. It's all over the map today, and it, it's a mess. And then I think infrastructure, I don't like the name you know spending more money for infrastructure, but if it was targeted infrastructure that addressed some of these concerns, I really do think that the high-rise mass transit dense population model that we were sold on during the Obama years is not a good model. It's better to disperse the population, work on the interstate, freeway system, reservoirs, dams, bridges, roads, finish out a lot of the incomplete transportation system to get the population more diverse. I think he needs to talk about the debt. I kind of like the old Simpson, Obama Simpson-Bowles commission that he neglected. Now is not the time to, to you know, raise taxes, but I think once we get back on our feet, we got to know that $30 trillion is not sustainable and it requires zero interest. And that's not good either. Permanently, almost. And I think finally, he's got to have an initiative that deals with the university that is, you know, I'm speaking as a member of our community of Stanford, but I, for the life of me, I don't understand why multi trillion dollar endowments uh, are tax exempt, the income from them, when the institution is not any longer apolitical. And it's, that can be adjudicated in a variety of criteria. And then I don't understand why the university has no moral hazard in promiscuously issuing these student loans to the tune of $1.6 trillion and then throwing these branded graduates or semi-graduates out on the uh, market without any responsibility to see if they're-
0: I wanna promise to you that we'll get back to universities and I wanna encourage my fellow panelists uh, to, uh, my fellow good fellows to jump in. I'm not gonna call on you guys. Uh, I'm gonna count on you to be your usual assertive selves and jump in when, uh, you also
2: want to get Victor going. Any, anyone in there? Well, John, I, I agree with Victor that it's much too early to write uh, Donald Trump off. I've been amazed at the number of professional commentators uh, on American politics, uh, including in uh, uh, reputable newspapers or formerly reputable newspapers, who seem intent on making exactly the same mistake that they made four years ago on the basis of exactly the same data, it's almost a perfect illustration of the definition of madness. I caught one Washington Post journalist insisting that on the basis of Trump's approval rating, he had absolutely no chance I was able to show him that he'd made exactly the same argument and been completely wrong four years ago. I think the polling is also liable to be a bit misleading. It's not been such a feature of American life, but it became a feature of, of British life in recent years, that people became a little reluctant to admit that they were going to vote conservative To opinion pollsters, and I suspect that we might be seeing some of that now. I'm a big fan of revealed preference, and uh, I'm I'm sure, as as an economist, uh, you know what I'm talking about, John. When when I when I look at what people are actually doing this year, a couple of things leap out, and it seems to me that they tell us a different story from the polls. Number one, gun sales have soared. June set a new record for background checks. Uh, But it's been a pattern actually uh, throughout the the year. And uh, one thing we know from 2016 is that when a household owns a firearm, it's quite likely to vote Republican. In fact, it's one of the best predictors of of a Republican vote uh, that we have for 2016. So that's interesting to me. And I think that the scenes that we witnessed on television as uh, one city after another seemed to plunge into disorder in the wake of uh, the tragic death of George Floyd may have had something to do with that. There was also a great econ paper that came out just the other day, you maybe saw it, John, uh, which showed that social distancing had actually gone up in cities where there were large-scale protests because the majority of people had in fact stayed at home and were more inclined to stay home when there were protesters in the street, hence no great spike in COVID-19 infections after the protests. I think it's worth remembering that the majority of people in those cities that saw protests were not protesting. So there's something in that old uh, cliche about the silent majority that I've noticed the president is uh, beginning to uh, refer to. I think we might just find that there is a significant proportion of people who've been genuinely shocked by events in American cities uh, in the past weeks. And I think that that could turn out to be a real source of uh, yeah. of salvation for President Trump when we get I would to agree November with you 3. that
0: also we have a, um, there's a lot to, that can happen in the next couple of months and the Democrats can easily shoot themselves, uh, or when we find a better metaphor, the Democrats uh, can easily the align third. themselves with, with views that are anathema to a large fraction of the electorate. And if the cities uh, turn into post-1968 apocalypse, Uh, If we continue to see the immense numbers of homicides, shootings going on in the cities, the police not there, the businesses uh, shut down, not due to COVID, but looted and gone, uh, even in the next couple of months, that is uh, certainly going to make a big difference in in how things are going forward.
1: I I would just quantify what Neil and both of you said. We had a a special congressional district not too far from where I live, and it was lost in... 2018, I think, by nine points. And Mike Garcia, a uh, naval graduate from the, uh, maybe uh, HR knew him, he was a pilot in Iraq, uh, pretty conservative Mexican American guy in a plus Democratic district, was down in the last poll, he was down by nine, and he won by eight. He's gonna, that was a special election. There was one in Wisconsin, there was a couple in a state legislator seats in Virginia of the same nature the polls are funny uh the democracy institute is a partisan republican conservative polling group but they actually were one of the most accurate and they're independent more libertarian than conservative they had trump even in a national poll uh last week and the trafagular republican state polls were the most accurate and they've got him equal in arizona down six and in Florida and about down two or three in the Midwest. So I think there's a lot of things that are in in fluid. And if he frames the election, not about Donald Trump's tweets or not about anything other than he's civilization and the alternative is anarchy in a way that Nixon did in 72 with McGovern, and then he'll do pretty well. And um, I think a couple of other considerations uh, about what's going on. And that is that we've got, we've got kind of a peak, I think, viral spike. And I think Scott Atlas has written pretty persuasively on elements of that. We've got kind of a peak, I think, economic problem. And I think it'll get a little better. And I think the, we're in the peak sympathy with antifa and black lives matter a lot of these institutions like hollywood the nba the nfl the retired generals they've lost a lot of empathy and sympathy and i don't see them coming back out and making persuasive arguments why you should join so i think it's still trump's uh, election to lose and i wouldn't argue remember that i remember in 1988 And I was from a strong Democratic family. And my parents were giddy because Mike Dukakis in August was 17 points ahead of George H.W. Bush. And they were running WIMP. Uh, Newsweek said they WIMP of Bush. And then this was 88. And then they unleashed this hellboy called Lee Atwater. And when he got done with Mike Dukakis, it was pretty scary. I mean, he did the tank commercial, he did the Boston Harbor commercial, he did the Willie Horton commercial. And that 17 point lead evaporated just like Jimmy Carter's seven point lead did with Reagan. And that was up in uh, May, I think Carter was ahead. And so it depends on how they characterize Joe Biden. If Joe Biden at some point can't run a virtual campaign, a virtual convention, a virtual debate, I mean, he'll try, but he seems non mentes to me, and I don't mean that in a gratuitously cruel fashion. And the more he gets out, and, and if they get a guy like Steve Bannon that is unprincipled and tough and mean, and they unleash him and say, go destroy him, then who knows what's going to happen.
2: But, well, I, have I have a question, have a question for HR, actually, uh, John, if I, if I can Please. jump in. Because heard one, one issue that, that really Victor hasn't mentioned is China. And, and foreign policy more broadly. And I do think that one of the key things that you achieved, HR and the administration, was to set a new course for US national security strategy, especially on the question of China. And that has proved to be the key feature, I think, of this administration. It's less and less plausible now Uh, that the old relationship with China could be resurrected, because the Chinese are themselves so obviously committed to Cold War II. And I wonder how far that's going to be an issue. Certainly, I can't see how Biden can be credibly portrayed as tougher on China than Donald Mm. Trump. Biden was during the the, the Obama administration. So H.R., what are your thoughts on the foreign policy aspect of this election?
3: Well, I think just to go back to one of the points Victor made at the outset, I think what the vast majority of Americans want to hear are are real proposals, are are real solutions to the problems, and I think that is is one of the one of the accomplishments of the Trump administration it has been to take a fundamentally different approach to China, rejecting the assumptions that that were that were obvious uh, by 2017 that are uh, were obviously false, and that was primarily among those assumptions was was that. China, having been welcomed into the international order, uh, would would, you know, would prosper and liberalize its economy as a result, and then liberalize its form of governance. And of course, uh, in the, the COVID crisis has in many ways catalyzed uh, the Chinese Communist Party's most aggressive behavior, and I think in many ways convinced all but a very few Americans that that adjustment to policy was correct. And I think even more than that, what you're seeing today is that more and more of, of our like-minded countries, allies in Europe and across Indo-Pacific are joining us. You just saw in the last couple of days, the UK's now rejection of Huawei. You have the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor meeting with European allies today uh, in, in Paris to talk about really not just Huawei, but the, the overall aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think this, this is... An issue that is beneficial to the Trump administration and and others could be as well. I think if there's a follow up on on Victor's on Victor's recommendation for real solutions, I think I think we can no longer afford (laughs) to propose non-solutions to problems. And 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 John Cochran, you 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 alluded to this already. We had Roland Fryer, Victor on in an earlier in an earlier episode of Goodfellows, and he pointed to his new research that whenever there is a police investigation that requires police to disengage for a period of time from a particular community, guess what? Crime and murders go up in that community. And we're seeing that that bear out today. So of course, defunding the police is not a solution uh, to the problem set associated with police brutality and unfair treatment and and the horrors of of George Floyd's murder. Uh, So I I think that the time is, is right for you know, for, for President Trump, you know, for Vice President Biden. I mean, to come up with, with real solutions it, it, instead of catering, I think, to what maybe they, they might believe are the predilections of their bases. And so I, I, just, I, I just wonder what any of us think the prospects are well, let of, me, of a let reversal me moderate. of polarization.
0: Let me use this as the, the moment to, to pivot to our culture war. As you'll notice, uh, HR is always the, the guy who wants us to get together and sing Kumbaya and get along, which a, a spirit, which I really must say, I, I admire uh, in, in you. Um, and so let's pivot to the, the big cultural uh, event of the moment, the, what do you wanna call it? The cancel culture, the great awakening, whatever. I wanna offer a few thoughts to kind of spur the discussion and let you guys take uh, which of these in the directions you think are, are useful. One, you know, we, we got historians and classicists here, so I would like to know parallel episodes in history, what you guys to comment. Uh, public confession of sins, uh, the, the ever-changing lingo you're supposed to adopt, and the merciless bullying and exclusion of, of heretics. I, I want us to remember that race is on the agenda right now, but this was a climate inequality and gender uh, war a few months ago, and all those issues are, are gonna be back. So let's, let's keep our discussion on the, the more general question, which includes all of those. I notice it's not just opinions. Uh, simple facts may not be spoken, any, spoken of anymore, like, like murder rates or tons of carbon and degrees of heating uh, get, uh, get, get you canceled. Uh, we'll talk about universities. I keep promising we'll talk about universities. We'll get there. But I'm struck to how this has uh, gone through all of the institutions of civil society, schools, nonprofits, corporations, media, the tech companies that now control our public discourse, government NGOs are all in in the throes of, of this movement, whatever we wanna, wanna call it. Um, the left seems to be eating its own as the Harper's letter episode as the New York Times shows. So is this the old left versus the new left um, as in the 1960s when the old left uh, lost that the old left is doomed to lose? Um, this movement is clearly political. It is uh, about grabbing, using, and keeping power. I don't think we should forget that. And, and you're welcome to comment on episodes. So I, I brought those up as kind of directions to go because this is uh, this is like throwing a, uh, this is like throwing up a big let's talk about it. But let, uh, so Victor, where do you want to go on this whole big issue? And then uh, everybody
1: I think you're right. It is a cultural revolution. And the dangers of a cultural revolution for the revolutionaries are is that they tend to be systematic, holistic, all-encompassing, 360. So they're not just like the American Revolution. This is more like the French Revolution. When we're not yet to year zero or the calendar dates and all that stuff or the cult of the supreme being. But it it reminds me of the supreme being. But what I'm getting at is that As they expand, they also dilute and they offend another group of people. So if you're not going to to watch the NBA and you see the average salary is $7 million and a guy won't even get up for the national anthem, then that's going to offend somebody. If you call 9-11 and you get a busy signal, that's going to offend somebody. If somebody loves to go into the park and see Junipio Serra or likes the San Gabriel Mission, that's going to offend someone. And that's what's happening is it dilutes. It's getting... The, it's it's going to start to touch people. And that's why the Democratic Party is, is, is very scared about it. And that's what happens with cultural weapons. That being said, they either consume their own or they dilute and they get a backlash. But if people don't speak up against it, then they create or transmit a false impression that they're the majority, like in the sense of the the Red Scarves during the Maoist Cultural Revolution or the Committee on Pub- for Public Safety in the French or more importantly, maybe even the Bolsheviks. So it requires people of good faith to stand up and say, I'm not gonna fire this person. I'm not going to censor this writer. I'm not gonna tear down this statue without a democratic vote of the city council. And once that starts, it'll snowball and people will see this thing as a sham. But right now we're right at the peak and we're waiting for some a Robert Welch to come out and say, I've had enough. Don't you have any decency? And when that happens, this thing will start to dissipate very quickly. Once the Me Too got close to Joe Biden, you know, that thing was gone. There was suddenly statutes of limitations and the Bill of Rights and constitutional protections. And then we had the old boy. She's lying. She's a liar. Because it got, it started to, and Garrison Keillor and, And and when you get into people in the liberal establishment, that it ended. So I hope that it can be pushed, the end can be pushed along by people speaking out against it. And that's why I think.
0: I'm not so optimistic as you are. I mean, look what's happened to climate. Uh, If if you want a job at a university, you simply cannot publish papers that uh, say facts contrary to, and not just the idea that carbon causes temperatures to rise. The idea that uh, climate change is inextricably wound up with progress on social justice and climate justice and the entire rest of the Green New Deal agenda. there And, and the institutions in which we live now force not just your silence, force your speech. Uh, Stanford is, is announcing the diversity and, and training that's coming our way. It'll be interesting oh, to see. I get lots of, when I read about these things, lots of people write me and say, you know, I don't dare say a word about this because of my job. Once the institutions are taken over, I mean, you, you said that some nice cases where this thing um, ends up, but there are cases where, uh, like the Bolsheviks, where a small minority is able to use this- the university is- to take over.
1: At our run-ins with the university, it's been lost for a long time. And I, just during this period, Without getting explicit, I've had some big run-ins with Stanford about trying to censor what I've said. And, coming- and we are the
0: most we are the most in your, immune to this sort of thing of, of anyone. Um, you know what what matters the vast majority of people who uh, don't have to, what, have to do it. We well, do.
3: I, think, I think the key thing is for us to set the example. We should set the example by the kinds of conversations we have on this show and the kind of scholarship that. That Hoover does. I mean, I think Victor's been a strong voice. Uh, Neil, you've been a strong voice. Or what are the conditions that lead to populism, progressivism, the interaction between those? I've I've heard both of you speak on this. I think uh, Victor, you gave a talk on this recently at the Reagan Foundation, and and Neil, you gave a talk on this at the boot camp uh, last year here, the Policy Boot Camp, about you know what are the conditions that lead uh, to, to this kind of uh, populism and. And that interacts, I think, in many ways with progressivism and is, is pulling us apart, at least in the popular media and the popular perception. But, I, you know, I do think, and John, you give me a hard time about this, but, you know, a bit, I think I was just predisposed in, in, to, in this direction because of my experience overseas, like seeing societies that are really divided and pitted against each other and how destructive that is. And then also being part of an institution in our in our army in which people come with all kinds of backgrounds, and guess what? They come with all kinds of prejudices, you know, and they, and 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 and, uh, and and predispositions toward one another, and you see that melt away as they are become parts of teams. They rely on each other. They're part of an organization where the man or woman next to them is willing to give everything, including their own lives, for each other. And guess what? They're not checking skin color, you know, <laughs> or anything else uh, yeah. when when you're in a fight. And so I just think I, I hope that this crucible we're going through. And, and Neil, I, I think in your talk, you said, okay, here's some really bad things that could know, that, that could lead to this kind of polarization. I think you mentioned pandemic, this is last year. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I do think there's a prospect for bringing us back together. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What can we do? And, and what can we do in the area of reform specific recommendations, what we do in academia, uh, speaking out, I agree with Victor is the number one thing. I mean, you People are afraid to even empathize with each other. You're not even allowed to do that anymore. You're not even allowed to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, and so I, I think that this is, is very dangerous. The Harper's letter was amazing because it wasn't the content
0: of the letter. It's that I, you may have signed a letter that somebody else who's on the Twitter list signed, and that causes you to be, uh, to be harassed out of existence.
2: But, John, you, you made it sound as if we were going to talk separately about universities, we'll whereas, there. of course, universities are precisely where all these problems arose. Uh, we all live on campus now. I think that was an Andrew Sullivan piece uh, a few years back. And uh, on the day when he joins Barry Weiss in, in walking out of, uh, of uh, a liberal publication that can no longer cope with Uh, The strength uh, and uh, range of his views. It's maybe not inappropriate to quote him. I do think we have to ask ourselves why it was that the universities, which were of course liberal leaning back, if you want to go all the way back to the 1950s, then became progressively inclined. The number of conservatives dwindled and the progressives then hired the Marxists and cultural Marxists. It's been a, a trend across the country, and indeed in the English-speaking world more generally, that that universities have become entirely unrepresentative of uh, the ideological spectrum of the populations uh, where they're located. And it's not surprising that that the media uh, and the tech world and the corporate world have shifted in the direction of an increasingly intolerant, illiberal ideology of wokeness. It came from the universities, and it simply spread out from those institutions. So we can't really talk about these things separately. I think what we're seeing is a kind of transformation of public life that originated in universities.
0: But I, I don't want to... Uh, let's move on to universities. But I don't want to under-emphasize what I see as as why it's so important right now is that it has spread to all the other institutions of civil society, starting with the, the schools. Uh, your children cannot get through high school. They... they they, they don't learn any Western civilization. They learn, you know, that uh, they, they don't um, learn all sorts of things that normally people learned in schools. So they, the schools have turned into indoctrination in a way. And the tech companies, yes, the young people in the tech companies and the media uh, have come out of universities. And universities were always hotbeds of sort of. Um, whatever you wanna call it, ideas, but it did not, in the 1960s, it didn't so permeate all the other institutions of civil society, which is really where in a democratic society, political uh, control comes from. You can afford to have universities saying crazy things as we did for 40 and 50 years, Uh, but it didn't um, turn quite into the ideology of a partisan politics until, it takes over everything else. I mean, I see central bankers are now uh, hot in for um, inequality and climate change. Goodness gracious, what are you guys doing? Uh, as just one small example, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but with the, let's let's turn to universities because that's I, I I'm reluctant because you know we live in universities so there's a tendency to navel gaze about our own lives, but that certainly is is the place. Um, not just on the cultural thing. Victor's written quite about it, so he's our special guest. And I'll invite Victor to think about where things are going. One, one recent column to get you going is you've written about the coming obsolescence of universities. Uh, if classes being, can be delivered at a distance, why pay so much to go to campus? Um, but on the other hand, if you're not learning anything <laughs> worthwhile, why do anything? Uh, maybe students outside science and engineering aren't learning any much at all. Isn't the university also a sort of a durable institution for forming the elite of a country and uh, in a way that uh, you can't replicate on Zoom?
1: Yeah, it was. And I think we've got about 20 universities that their attraction is a brand, like a cattle brand. Come to Stanford, Harvard, Duke, Princeton, and then have the experience, and that's a synonym or a euphemism, you'll meet somebody from Goldman Sachs's kid, or you'll meet you'll connect, you'll marry, and you'll be, you'll be entrenched and embedded within the elite. You take that away with distance learning, and then you have to ask yourself, why do I pay 70,000 bucks to stay in my basement to take teleclasses when I can download a Nobel Prize guy from Europe for one dollar? And so that's, that's something that's, it, we've got to remember how we got here. The university did not used to educate half of American youth. It was about a third or a quarter once we sold everybody on getting this brand, it's about half now, and a lot of people in the university are not qualified, they're political hacks, and a lot of students would be much better off being autodidactic and getting a vocational skill because Neil's right, the fuel that's driving this this cultural revolution is a profile of a pajama boy, uh, life of Julia, unhappy person who was from the middle class. They went and got their DASH studies degree six, seven years. They worked on and off and they got 70 or $80,000 in student debt. And they're part of the $1.6 trillion in student debt. And guess what? They look at themselves and they say, I'm 24. My grandparents came out of World War II. They bought a home. They got married. They had kids. They bought a car. They had a savings account. And I'm a barista in AOC somewhere, or I'm in Portland or Seattle, and this is supposed to be so cool, and I'm so articulate, but I know nothing. I have no real skills, I have no marketable skills, and they get frustrated and angry. And they are, are useful idiots for people a little bit more woke about how they can be foot soldiers in the revolution. How do we stop all of that? I think. One big difference, I mentioned a couple, but I really think it would be really important to give people who graduate a simple choice. If you want to go into K through 12, you don't have to go through that awful school of education indoctrination. And you can get an MA for one year, just like we do with parochial schools with BAs, and you can teach. I had the misfortune in the Cal State system of teaching my classes in Greek and Latin in the school of education. So I would listen to them next door, and it was all indoctrination, race, class, gender, nonstop. If you gave a student and said, you got an English degree, you wanna be a sixth grade English teacher, you can go over there and get your credential or you can just spend a year and get an MA and read Shakespeare, either way, we don't care. I don't think you'd have a school of education left. The same thing about tenure. We need to go back to five-year contracts spelled out, this is what it is, and then you go on. If you don't fulfill them, you don't don't get one.
0: There is something, I I want to riff on this, there's something hopeful that I saw in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, tragedy. The left realized that police unions are a problem, (laughs) that you can't fire bad cops, uh, and that the police unions have pushed uh, policing to ever expand. Uh, Sooner or later they may discover the teachers unions. Have robbed a generation of black kids and poor white kids and uh, many other people on the lower end of American society from any hope education. of escaping. Because what you mentioned is perfect common sense, and it is perfectly forbidden by teachers' unions. Uh, and what, you
1: know what else, uh, John? We need it. We have this this ritual that we have an entrance exam, ACT, SAT. I know they're trying to get rid of them, but the idea is that. If you come from my high school where I graduated that my A was not as comparative, uh, competitive as a guy from Palo Alto's A. So we had the SAT. ACT. Okay, fine. They say standards matter. Why not have an exit test? Because I have a hunch that somebody from Hillsdale would score much higher than somebody from Stanford, my own, after teaching at both universities. So if we had a national exit exam to get your BA, and credential your BA, I think that would be very valuable because it would make these curricula a little bit more sensible about what skills constitute education. And then we gotta do something about this nexus of huge endowments, huge amounts of money, and uh, this tax-free income that is really inordinately spent on therapeutic social services, administrators, diversity, inclusion, all that stuff. Provost. Well,
0: let, let, me, uh, let me just, I, I hate to out Victor Victor, uh, but universities are, uh, as has been documented, extremely political. You look at party affiliations, and it's like in the 99 percent um, Actually, being a Democrat is too right-wing in many parts of universities, and they are moving explicitly to activism. Universities are, as you said, getting rid of the SAT for entrance, even though the SAT was a great way for people a generation ago to overcome the racial and economic prejudices of university admissions committees. Uh, My dad got into Yale because he was able to take a test and prove that a kid from Berkeley High actually might know something in the 1950s, which was assumed that he wouldn't. Uh, But they are now, universities are asking for activists. An activist is someone who knows all the answers and needs only to to go and and and, uh, put them into place. And the universities themselves are moving to activism. I just saw two examples. Columbia has now joined Stanford to, uh, to start a school of climate with an explicit mission for activism. Now, what is a tax deductible, tax supported, they get he- lots of money from the federal government, set of institutions that are allowed to run essentially a huge hedge fund on the side <laughs> and a football team, uh, yet are devoted to political uh, entirely to political causes on entirely one side of the political spectrum. Uh, that that seems like a um, undesirable outcome. And uh, I've noticed the Trump administration is talking about it's going to put uh, IRS tax deductible status in the crosshairs, uh, which will be interesting to see how that one uh, how that one goes.
2: One up. question that we should think about is is why there are no new universities because. One of the big uh, differences between our time and, and past periods in American history is that in the past, when people were dissatisfied with the existing colleges, they created new ones. Uh, the, the billionaires of an earlier era, of the Gilded Age of the late 19th century, early 20th century, created some extraordinary institutions, whereas today's... To Chicago. <laughs> to, to, to name just two, Stanford, Chicago. But, but today's wealthy seem content to continue... Uh, giving money to already very wealthy institutions. And I think that is a kind of, of decadence. It seems to me that we're confronted with such a profound problem, particularly in the ideological skew of, of universities. The the ratios of, of liberals to, to conservatives or Democrats to Republicans are just enormous now. That that The only reasonable response, because I don't think you can capture institutions back once they've been completely taken over by one side, is to create new ones. And that would be a kind of lesson of American history. If you don't like these universities, well, create some better ones.
0: But that's where the larger issue, I think, comes up. If you want to social climb in the era of philanthropy, uh, uh, you know, giving money to Hillsdale College or founding a university devoted to classical liberalism is not going to get you a lot of points in the nonprofit circles of San Francisco or, or the tech giants. Um, If you want, and to do well, you have to sell that your university is going to get students into good jobs in the elite. Well, the New York Times isn't going to hire uh, from these places. The people who run the HR departments at tech companies in our more and more oligopolistic industry are not going to hire from these places. So you have a, it's not just starting a university as was possible in the old days where it was just really, really good. Uh, and you could hire, um, well, University of Chicago got, got good by hiring Jews, which Harvard would not hire. <laughs> um, uh, it's not enough to just be really, really good. So it, it's harder to break in than you think.
1: I do think that the, these demonstrations and, and uh, the activity of faculty and op-eds and a lot of the things that we have, have associated with the universities, especially this new genre of this pathetic re-education camp-like uh, letter from administrators to the larger community where we apologize, we're so steep and endemic, and we're going to do the following. After telling everybody they're gonna lay off this person and they're gonna cancel this sports program and they're gonna do this, then they just fall all over them. themselves to say that all of these new administrative bloat positions are going to appear to pacify the mob. Given all of that, I think there is a sense in America that these brands should be really questioned. They remind me of sort of Coke when Pepsi came out. They're just, they're old. They don't certify that the people who graduate can speak or write well or think logically. They don't have a historical uh, spectrum of reference. They're not very educated in economics or science. They know nothing about military history so there's studies people dash studies you know gender studies environmental yeah. studies and i think a lot of people in the...
3: well i just i just would like well, to say it, that i i know it's this maybe a self-selecting group of students who i work with but i am super impressed with with the students i work with and those, those who have in courses at the gsb and and at the freeman Spogli institute and, and I think that maybe one of the greatest hopes maybe for reform might be what the students themselves demand. And I think what you'll tend to see are maybe the most vocal students on fringes of issues. But in my experience, I, I, I know that, you know, obviously at Stanford, you have an immensely talented group of young people uh, and th- those with whom I've interacted are well-motivated, they're intellectually curious, and they are reflexively opposed and resistant to being fed any orthodoxy. Now, I, I think that that's, that's a positive. I, I believe that we may be at the apogee you know, of, of, the, of the rise of the new left and the foisting of this orthodoxy on students in certain universities. And, and, and it's been on the rise, I think, since the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, I, I, I've not studied this. I think this is worthy of, of more focused research. But it was the Vietnam War that encouraged, especially students in the humanities, to get student deferments to stay out of the war by you know continuing to study english literature and history and social sciences and sociology and then these departments in you know, in the crucible of that opposition to the to the vietnam war began to just reinvent themselves over several generations until departments are dominated in some cases by those who adhere to the orthodoxy of the new left. And I'm going to be super simplistic in this, but that orthodoxy is essentially all of the ills of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism. All of the ills of the world after 1945 were due to capitalist imperialism. And, you know, I'll tell you, Orwell was right when he wrote into 1984, if you control the past, you control the present. And what happened is a lot of the interpretations, especially of, of American history, in that period of time, have made it into secondary education. And in, in many ways, this is a curriculum of self-loathing. And America is seen not as a continuing exper- experiment in self-improvement founded on, on, on principles of, of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, uh, the Bill of Rights, but instead, in, in, instead it, it, it is founded on Perpetuating, perpetuating slavery, perpetuating inequality. And I think that what we have to do, in many ways, is administer a historical corrective, to break the orthodoxy, to to teach all of the flaws in our history, to teach you know the failure of Reconstruction, to teach Jim Crow and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, to teach separate but equal, but then but to teach it in the context of the vast improvements. What Thomas Sowell talks about. In, in 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 his interviews uh, recently, so I, I would just welcome, really maybe academia we're, we're, we're casting as part of the problem, which of course it, it may be, but can't academia be part of the solution as well?
1: well? You say that you sound that you found this island of students, but I do think they're self-selecting. I I think all of us talk to to Stanford Review students, or I have a few classic students that wander in. I gave it. I just. Give you one example. I was asked to teach a class on hydrology, water issues, and that was kind of controversial. Very nice kids, kind of people that you're referencing. So I walked in and I said, uh, Will somebody tell me what bowls are on a pump? Silence. Will somebody tell me the difference between a gravel pack and an open bottom well? silence can somebody give me any ratio of depth of well to electrical horsepower to gallons per minute pump zero how about irrigation drip versus mini jet versus furrow versus sprinkler zilch this is hydrology sanford so what do they know john you can you could tell me right now what that class is about
0: well, they didn't know property rights to water either, and the oh, ability know, to resell asked, it to the highest bidder. <laughs> I asked
1: about the Perian water rights, and I asked about 19th because I'm in a I'm in an irrigation district that has a 19th century water right to the Kings River, but they all knew that water transfers are bad, that reservoirs are bad, that the the Delta Smelt is an iconic figure, and they didn't know anything. But they had this bad combination of being very confident and very ignorant about water, and I. I mean, it was a complete waste of time. And these people are going to be turned it loose and get into the tech world and the government world and the regulatory world. And then they're gonna come down here to Fresno County and they're gonna tell some guy who's working all day long on a thousand acre farm, this is wrong and you can't do that. And oh, by the way, that pond is an inland waterway and we're gonna come and sample all of its water. So I'm you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we could, the things we've talked about can restructure. And there's some really, you're right, H.R., there's some brilliant, wonderful kids at Stanford, but every time I find them, not that I'm saying that they gravitate to Hoover alone, but they seem to be, I don't know, they kind of, beaten down or they're in little cells they remind me of maki and the french Revolution, of the french resistance they
0: yeah, the problem right now is you can't put um soul on a reading list where there will be a protest outside in front of your uh, in front of your uh, or, or or charles murray i actually know that one for a fact but i think what's happening it's not quite so bad what's happening is so far at universities it has been duck hire a whole bunch of administrators send a bunch of uh letters out to pacify the mob People have realized that uh, these majors don't get you jobs. Certainly what Stanford is doing is uh, focus on science and engineering, uh, learn to program computers, learn some math, learn learn how to run some statistics and do big data. You'll get out competent. You'll know how to actually do something. And that's where the university has value added. The problem with that is um there was some value to the and the humanities are dying there are no jobs in the humanities people don't want to take they only take the classes if they're forced to as a matter of, of requirements or if they had some interest in it and had the false notion they were going to learn something about it in those classes um the sad thing is you you get people who do know some math and some equations and how to actually program a computer but they are uneducated as citizens as thinkers they they when that uh, when that person who actually might have learned the navier stokes equations in his physics class is then presented with a hydrology problem in the central valley he doesn't know the difference between a, I i can't get this right a gravel bottom or a muddy bottom well um, but you, so you need educated citizens as well i think the universities can survive by moving themselves to, to tech things and as an economist what happened was Uh, In the 80s, a huge salary gap emerged in the 80s and 90s. People who went to university were doing tremendously better than people who weren't because there was this demand for skills. Then we made the classic mistake of, oh, rich people drive Cadillacs, so give everyone a Cadillac and they'll get rich. And people went to universities on borrowed money, and nobody noticed it mattered which major you took. (laughs) And so we started producing this uh, vast number of people who have, lots of debt and, uh, and and really don't know much. Victor pointed out, I think, a danger of this. In many other parts of the world, Victor has a great column on how this leads to revolution. The 9-11 hijackers were all university graduates who had been given majors in things that there were no jobs in. Um, that is, uh, when when you expand on that thing and give people aspirations and debt and useless degrees, uh, you do create a, a group of people who know just enough to be dangerous. Sorry, go ahead, Neil.
2: I was going to make a similar point that one of the lessons of history is that if you have a big increase in the supply of, of graduates, but limited opportunities for them, that, that, that is your revolutionary intelligentsia. And one of the reasons that I take seriously what we're seeing in American cities this year is that we've seen very similar things in cities all around the world in the past 12 months. Remember last year, all the extraordinary scenes from uh, Hong Kong to to Santiago by way of of Beirut, and a very clear pattern emerged when I delved into it. In all the countries where there were large-scale protests, there had been massive expansion of higher education in the recent decades. So I think one clear lesson of history is uh, that the expansion of higher education as an end in itself is actually a distinctly hazardous enterprise. But the other more cheerful lesson that I want to offer is is an 18th century lesson. Uh, In the 18th century, the universities of of Europe were not particularly dynamic places. My alma mater, Oxford, uh, was particularly uh, stuck in the doldrums of a previous intellectual era. And most of the intellectual uh, excitement of that period that we call the Enlightenment didn't happen on campus at all but happened in networks of intellectuals corresponding and communicating with one another, not necessarily reliant on on uh, a tenured uh, chair. So I'm hopeful that one of the, the, the developments of our time, the emergence of an intellectual dark web a network of disaffected intellectuals who've quarreled in various ways with their institutions, whether universities or magazines, this is actually one of the healthier developments and I I sense that there is a tremendous appetite amongst intellectuals for real freedom Uh, and they see that appetite being checked by the institutions where they're based well thanks to the internet it isn't quite so difficult as it used to be to strike out independently uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and end this conversation on an optimistic note. I agree that actually there are many students, I don't think it's just a minority, who are deeply yes. frustrated by the great awakening and really dislike the atmosphere of intimidation uh, that exists on campuses today, in such a stark contrast to the campuses that I remember when I was a student. They're, they're definitely fed up with this. And I think a great many professors and, and writers are fed up with it too. And the liberals are coming to realize. Realize that then, in fact, the the real threat to liberty doesn't come from Donald Trump, the supposed tyrant that they were so terrified of four years ago. That the real threat to their liberties as intellectuals actually comes from the left. That is sinking in. That's part of the significance of the Harper's letter. It's part of the significance of Barry Weiss leaving the New York Times. And it's part of the reason that we're having this conversation on Goodfellows because Hoover is one of the few institutions, one of the very few left where it's still possible to express conservative sentiments, as we've done on this show, and not tremble in fear of your future employment.
0: Let me just riff on that because I think it's an incredibly important point. I started with pushing the idea that the institutions of civil society had been taken over by the far left and enforcing conformity. Well, the answer is create your own institutions. You know, we've seen in the legal camp how, the, how important the Federalist Society was to give Home to uh, to conservative thinkers, you may agree with them or not, but it is the home for conservative legal thought that otherwise is stamped out by the academia, by the bar associations, and so forth. Well, similarly, um, if if you if you we need not just individuals who can speak out, but institutions that can help those individuals. When you're being Twitter mobbed, we'll help you. When you're being fired, we'll give you legal help. Uh, we'll give you the, the support that you need in order just to express the basic fact of. Um, I, I may not agree with what you say, but I defend at the death your right to say it, which is that, that that's what's uh, in danger right now. So it's not just individuals, it is institutions. And as long as the internet isn't censored, it will be useful, uh, a very useful way for us to be able to create such institutions, which the left now wants to, the, the sensible left wants to be able to talk as well as we do. They're just as worried. Uh, My worry is that uh, internet self-censorship, censorship censorship by the woke staff is already pretty darn strong, and the move to censor it by government is stronger still. So I I hope we have the opportunity uh, to create contrary institutions in support of people's freedom to talk.
3: Victor, what would Socrates say? Can we end with that? (laughs) (laughs) Well...
1: Socrates never said it, but Plutarch said he said it. He said he was a citizen of the world. He was a first globalist. So he was, uh, but I mean, he was a victim of the mob. And he was sort of a, remember the army lawyer, Robert Welsh, you have no decency to McCarthy, when he was convicted according to Plato's tetralogy of dialogues. And in ancient Athens, when you were convicted of something, you proposed the uh, punishment. To the, the mob the jury mob and you it was kind of a psychological tension because if you asked for too little they got angry and did too much if you asked for too much they showed sympathy and gave you little so he said that after being found guilty of introducing new gods and corrupting the youth he wanted a free meal every day on the expense count of the the democracy and that ended up with drinking the hemlock so he had contempt and he could have broken out, according to the Euthropo, many times, and he chose not to. But I do think we need some people. This uh, CEO of Goya Foods is a good moral example. When they were trying to cancel him out the other day, he said, you know what? Do your best. I'll, you do your worst, I'll do my best, basically is what he said. And we need more people to stand up like Socrates did and say it's not going to happen anymore as far as I'm concerned. I wish we had one editor of a major newspaper, one university president, just one, one guy at Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, one person, New York Times, Washington Post that said, I don't know what's going on in the country, but I am not firing anybody in this ed- editorial room. And I'm not giving in to any demand right now until I study it and we have a consensus. I'm just not going to do it. And I think it would, I mean, it's an improper metaphor, but it would be a Napoleonic whiff of grape shot. It really would. It would tell people we're not going to take it anymore, and I think it would start to dissipate because forces are already dissipating. But we've got to push it along.
0: There are so many institutions where, if you want to climb in your institution, you you cannot possibly do that. The so central banks are that way right now. I, I brought those up before. Universities, media, everywhere. Uh, I guess if if a couple of people at the top have the courage to speak out all on their own, that will help. Uh, but, boy, is it deep ingrained. I'm in not
1: it if you're young. Uh, Neil and I have here at Hoover, but I have a, a, a lot of people that I correspond with them on a lot of PhD exam. And they literally cannot get people to serve on their PhD exams. They can't get jobs. They're ostracized, blacklisted because they're conservative or even moderate. As you said, conservative can mean you're a liberal Democrat in the university. So I think we all need to help those people in any way according to our station and tell them they can be confident that they won't be punished and we're going to try to help them get a job or get some type of employment. There has to be an underground railroad, so to speak, to help.
0: Okay, Uh, that's it, everybody, for this episode of The Goodfellows. We'll be back next week with a new conversation. Uh, On behalf of The Goodfellows, myself, H.R. McMaster, Neil Ferguson, and our special Goodfellow guest, Victor Davis Hanson, as well as everyone here at Hoover. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thank you very much, see you next week.